Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to this latest episode of the First Word Podcast. I'm here with my co-host. Mike. And uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, first things first, got to get a little bit of an apology out of the way. It's been so long since we did the last episode. I think it was at the end of April for Avengers Endgame was our last episode, and now we're at the end of July. Uh, and our apologies for that. Um, Mike we got, and I we have... got blipped when the Hulk did his snap. <laughs> yes, the that podcast was... podcast was blipped. We've been gone for five years, and now we're back. Uh, no, uh, Podcasts but, uh, have really changed. It gets sent straight to your mind now. You don't even need to tune in. You just zip right in your head. Um, no, it's just been a, a really busy summer for both of us. And uh, actually, the, everyone, not everyone, but a couple of people said, hey, are you going to do a Spider-Man episode? And I thought, hey, we could do two Marvels in a row. It might be too much. I want to talk about something different. So we're glad to be getting into a, a different episode today, talking about Tarantino and, and his new film. Um, but just, just apologies if you were waiting for something and, and really wanted to hear us discuss it. Um, maybe we'll discuss more of these films that we, we skipped over the summer at the end of the year. I know Godzilla was a big one we were considering talking about because I think you had the same feelings as me, Micah. I, I liked it, but I didn't love it, but it was a, a huge letdown to a lot of critics. Um, but still enjoyable. And now that the three months have passed over the summer it's kind of like one of them i've completely forgotten about really quickly i was super hyped for it the marketing was great i thought it was gonna be this unforgettable like mad max level epic and it was just kind of like eh, it was all right you know i didn't hate it like a lot of people i strangely have thought about that movie more than most of the other movies this <laughs> really? summer. yeah okay. i didn't i didn't uh i didn't love it i liked it about as much as i was probably supposed to like it you know yeah but like yeah, yeah. I the, the whole everything they did with Mothra I still think was awesome and I I have yeah. thought about wanting to go watch it again not the whole movie just those Mothra scenes and then I also have thought about how just absolutely fucking stupid yeah exactly the, rest of the movie was exactly. and and how how much I've wondered on multiple occasions just at random did people ever say something where they were just like I can't see everything you're going to put on the screen. So I know that there's a lot left in my imagination here on this production set. But you you know what you're doing, right? <laughs> I mean, I it's guess. One of those, but... for, the, for me, it's one of those movies where just like a couple of interruptions of the process may have helped. Yeah, that's true. I mean, um, super critical of me, but, you know. No, no, I understand. It, it, it. I think it felt like it should have been way better than it was, and it was kind of like no one could really figure out why. Almost like you know, I don't know. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, we're we're happy to be back together for another podcast. The other funny thing that it, there was a quote from uh, Tarantino in an interview he gave with GQ, which has been going around. He said a lot of interesting things, but he refers to someone asked him about, uh, "Are you going to be campaigning for Oscars?" And he refers to the process of campaigning. He makes this funny line where he says. Uh, basically, would I sit down with every chucklehead that has a podcast? No, I'm not going to do that. But the funny thing is, I'm like, well, that's me and Mike. We're chuckleheads with the podcast. Here we go. You know. So if you're listening, thank you for joining us. <laughs> we appreciate it. Again, apologies for the delay getting going. And actually, if you do want to listen to Tarantino on a podcast, uh, a friend of the show, Amy Nicholson, has a new podcast show she just launched um, on Friday with the releases of his film, where Tarantino goes on, I think it's five or six, ep uh, five or six episodes total of him talking about various films and history and inspirations throughout his career and all that stuff. So you might as well listen to that if you actually want to hear a Tarantino on a podcast. Um, but in the meantime, we're going to jump into our discussion and uh, bring on a guest that we've had on before. Uh, he is a 
fellow podcaster as well for the Out Now podcast, um, Aaron Neuwirth, will be joining us. So we're going to get right into that. Hey, Aaron, welcome to the show again. Thanks for having me back. Of course, of course. So um, before we get into the main topic with you, one thing I actually wanted to discuss is that we were just talking about Godzilla in the intro. Uh, and, and Heard of him. He's 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 made some movies. He's been no so so for all our listeners, if you don't know, Aaron wrote a really fantastic article for first showing uh, a couple months ago during the release of the new Godzilla movie this summer about the history of Godzilla and like where to begin and what to watch. And I really love this piece because I had wanted it to be from this angle of like I don't know much about these original movies, where to watch, what to do. Um, and then coincidentally, uh, a couple days ago, the Criterion Collection announced their spine number 1000 being this Godzilla box set. And it looks incredible. It, 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 it like, I feel like everyone needs to own it. Right, Aaron? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've been, it was kind of like a dream I was hoping would come true because a thousand was coming up. And I know Criterion has all the licenses for the gut for most of the Godzilla movie, or at least the Showa era, which is that's what's specifically being touted here, which is the 1954 to 75 um, collection of Godzilla films. And then like the email finally came and it said, Godzilla, it's fine 1000. And I'm like, Oh my God, yes. And then like the person in front of me was like, let me down, sir. And then I was like, okay, I'm sorry. And I'll leave this Burger King right away. Uh, after that, I got home and I was like, yes, look at all the details on this set. It's amazing. Yeah, but how? Okay, so it is the, the, this one era, but that's still like what twenty three films or something it's, like that. It's fifth. It's fifteen films. Yes. Okay. Sorry. We, yeah. See, I don't even know. I don't. No, like, it's all good. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's fifteen films that that makes up the Showa era of Godzilla films, which is the kind of the ones that people typically think of. They're kind of the, especially as they kind of in the second half of that, you get the kind of the the, the cheesier Godzilla films, the ones that are campier. Two of them are um, uh, MSTK three thousand like movies as far as what they've done in the past with those i mean yeah there's a lot of a lot of the gifts that you see online come from a lot of this, this era of godzilla yeah. film and that's why like even uh, despite that what is it 180 dollars or something despite the the price tag i'm like i just want to own it just to own it you know for the artwork and for the fact that it is 1000 and like it just seems like they kind of nailed this perfect as you said dream come true box set for even if you're not the biggest godzilla fan like why not just own it just to have it anyway I mean, it's a it's a great looking set. So there's no, yeah. I don't, you know, if you have the money and you like Criterion's, there's, uh, you know, there's plenty of reason. <laughs> so. Exactly, exactly. So I'm, I just wanted to mention that because I thought it was cool that you had written this piece for us, and like then now that it's Godzilla has returned again with his whole new yeah, it's back at his history. And, I mean, a lot of it's, but yeah, with the new, with Godzilla King of the Monsters came out, it's also the 65th anniversary of Godzilla. I mean, they had a booth at Comic Toho, the company that makes the the films. Like they had a booth at Comic Con for the first time. Like there's been a lot of cool Godzilla related stuff for any fan this year. And you know, with the Criterion set, it's like now a whole new pe group of people can watch not just like the first one, which has already been on Criterion, but all the other films that come with it. And they're going to be rematched. Like I on my I lovely girlfriend Anna and I we saw a Godzilla thon um, at the Egyptian <laughs> Theater in Hollywood back in May, where they played eight Godzilla films back to back. And, um, and they're, they're original Toho prints, so they look certainly pretty faded because they're, you know, going on 40, 50 years old. So remastered versions of these movies sounds pretty terrific to me. Um, so And plus new features and, like, the really cool box art for all the different movies and yeah. everything. Yeah, it, it's all, I'm all into it. Gorgeous, it's gorgeous. 
Um, well, uh, yeah, the, now that I mentioned that, this is the one thing I wanted to get off my, uh, off my mind because it's, it's so freaking cool. But um, Where do you think Tarantino in... lies on this? On Godzilla? I feel like it's, one, it's absolutely one side or the other. He either absolutely loves them or, <laughs> or hates them for some reason. That's a fair question. I, if I had to guess, I'd say Tarantino loves everything cinema related and it's more about how he chooses to view it. So like I'd say on the one hand, he probably loves the fact that he probably loves Godzilla films like kaiju cinema in general. He probably knows a hell of a lot more than any of us combined about that. At the same time, he's probably not like, I don't need a Blu-ray of this. I have my own prints that I own that I'll play at my theater and they look like crap, but I don't care because I'm Tarantino. Like that's, that's where he probably yeah. stands on it. That's a good point. Now, now I want to know, like, if anyone gets an interview with him, please ask him about the Godzilla movies. Yeah, but it, uh, make it your last question, because if he goes off on something, you'll only get one question. <laughs> but that will be one hell of an answer. Or he'll reject your hypothesis. True, true. I would be, I'm honestly, if I ever had an interview with him, I would be straight up nervous as hell. Like, I don't, I don't know how I would keep it together. Because he would just, just trash me, kind of like, my infamous Nicholas Wingden Refn interview where just like I wasn't truly prepared for it. It was just like, oh my God, he's he walks all over everything you say because you can't match him in any cinema knowledge. And I don't know. So you, you've, never, you've never interviewed Tarantino then? No, 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 I haven't. The, the okay. other most I, daunting one I ever did was Fincher, but not Tarantino. I, I've met him once. It was at the Scott Pilgrim premiere of all things. And like, I was at the, uh, my friend Ken and I were at the after party and he was there because he's one of the tallest people in Hollywood. Cause everybody else in Hollywood is like four foot tall, except Tarantino. He's like seven. And then his chin makes him an extra five. So it's like, I, I, saw, I was like, well, I'm going to go say something to this guy over here in my full confident voice. Then I get up there and it's like, this is hard. And I, but I walk up, I get like a second of like, I babble something and I was like, Jackie Brown, one of my favorite movies of all time. And he's like, oh, thanks, man. And then he walks away. That was That's the extent of my meeting Tarantino. <laughs> that sounds probably like most of his meetings with him. Yeah. <laughs> from, from what I get the sense, especially even reading the interviews he's putting out now, I get the sense that he's like, he generally doesn't give a shit about most people. And like, you know, he, he yeah, I don't know. But that's, a, that's certainly when it comes to like the, the press rigmarole. Like it seems yeah. like, it, yeah, he's kind of, you know. It's more like I think he has his guard up because, like, I've just made a movie. I'm putting it out into the world. So the idea of people telling me about things that they don't know because it's my movie and not theirs, it's, that's kind of his attitude, it seems. <laughs> true, true. Um, well, so before we get into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, I actually wanted to briefly discuss, because I know we could go on for three hours on this alone, just our, our general Tarantino thoughts. Because I know everyone has been putting out their top tens on, uh, on Twitter. Um, I know it's like a thing for the last week now to rank your Tarantino movies. Um, and before I say anything about mine, I admit I haven't seen Jackie Brown, which I know is a shame because it is your favorite. <laughs> and um, I was actually thinking, like, should I watch it this weekend before the podcast? And I was like, nah. And it's just the weirdest thing to me about Jackie Brown to, to begin this discussion is that um, until we get into these rankings, it's never brought up by anyone. Maybe Maybe you're a different era, but, like, I don't hear anyone ever bring it up. It's not like something that comes up in normal conversation or normal film Twitter discussion or whatever. It's only in these moments where everyone's like finally ranking their Tarantino movies that get mentioned. And then I, f I feel like that's why I've never seen it because most of the time if it's like someone's gonna watch a Tarantino or recommending a Tarantino or whatever, 
I go through everything else except for Jackie Brown. I'm like, well, do I want to watch it? And there's no one like whispering in my ear, like, yes, you should, Alex. It's. I mean, if you if you, you brought know? the question up to me, I'd absolutely say it all the time to you. I I, I I'm going to now knowing this now, I'm going to start. I'm just going to start randomly DMing you. Have you watched Jackie Brown yet? <laughs> well, I need to. It's cl clearly also because it's the only one I haven't seen. So it's like, why not get on this? I don't. Well, it, the weirder thing to me is th that you're saying you don't hear discussion about it because I feel like from where I stand, where where I seem to sit, because I've been. I've been a Jackie Brown fan since Jackie Brown came out. Um, but it's it feels like for a lot of people that are quote unquote over Tarantino or want to have some shocking new wave of opinions on him, it, it feels like it's the cooler thing to say now that Jackie Brown is their favorite Tarantino film. Uh, yeah, as opposed as a, as opposed to saying Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs or I don't know. It, it feels like I, I more off for me, I more often hear that Inglorious Passage of Jackie Brown is the number one Tarantino film. That's the one that he truly shined on. Where as opposed to like ten years ago, twenty years ago when it came out, and it's like this is a disappointment. There's yeah, but there's no there's no there's no <laughs> where's all the stuff that made us love Pulp Fiction? What's this Jackie Brown nonsense? Why is she just standing around talking to people for a bunch of time? I think that's what I think I'm like still coming off of that though. Like I think I because I think I really got into Tarantino in the Kill Bill era, and that was like right after Jackie Brown, where everyone was still saying, why isn't this like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction? Why is this so different? And then we got kind of like consumed with the Kill Bill. And then I feel like everyone, again, I know this is just my perspective, that everyone had forgotten about Jackie Brown. And then, of course, we went through, you know, the Grindhouse era and then the Inglorious Bat. It's like, but then now it's come back in a way where I'm like, I... Did, like I should have seen this seven years ago and I never did and now I need to catch up with it. So anyway, that's I only say this because I have to admit my my shame here publicly on this episode <laughs> because of course I could talk about everything else except for that one. But that is your number one, right, Aaron? I mean, it wait. I yes. A short answer is yes. <laughs> like it's because it's splitting hairs. Like I love Jackie Brown, I love Pulp Fiction, I love Inglorious Bastards. It's, you know, there's nothing that really separates them as far as quality. It's just more of which one I'm happy to choose as my yeah. number one. And at the same time, it's not just number one of Tarantino films. It's basically my favorite film of all time. So it's like... <laughs> Jackie Brown, really? I mean, it's the... when you. I mean, you know this. and You ask any of us, you know, any of us guys that are doing right. this kind of people doing this thing as far as naming your favorite film. It's like, yeah, there's not just one. But it's easier for me to just say, you know, rattle off like a few three five standards then you know name like absolutely number one or what have or name or conversely name like 20 different movies that i love but it, as far as your root question here of like our thoughts on tarantino whatever it is that makes his films happen like it all works for me like my least favorite tarantino film is still what i consider a great movie so it's hard for, yeah. like I, it could going over like my thoughts on tarantino is like he just clicks like that's the I best agree. way I can say it. Like I know there some people have like they find some of the things he does distasteful or some of his later movies they don't like as much as his earlier movies or vice versa. But everything he's done just seems to like click right for me. Like I and it's not even just blind love or what have you. Like I I mean I, I wrote 1700 words on this movie. Like I know I, I know what I'm trying to say as far as how I appreciate his works. And it's just like if he made a bad movie, I'd be happy to call him out for it. <laughs> like and it's not even a matter of like agreeing with every single perspective he has. I certainly have to find faults with some of his films for the way he chooses to treat certain people, groups, ethnicities, or what have you. But when it comes to like seeing cinema on screen. He is a, one of the few modern directors that's still kind of delivering something that's completely uniquely himself. 
And yeah. that's a lot more I can admire than, you know, the latest brand of Disney this week. So. Yeah, like not completely original movies that he's written and also films that are completely individual in their own way. Like, you know, he can make Hateful Eight, which is a whole different thing than Inglorious Bastards, which is a whole different thing than the Kill Bill movies. And it's like each one has some, I mean, there's obviously the, the, the certain individual aspects of Tarantino that work its way into it, but it's still a beautifully orchestrated thing on its own. And I love that every time. And there's always, ever since I've been writing for First Showing, which is since 2006, I've been in the, the uh, grindhouse beyond era of Tarantino. And there's always mm -hmm. that excitement of like every new movie he makes. And I kind of felt a little bit like you, and where every time you, a new one would come out, there would always be this like, did he screw up? Did he finally make a stinker? And every time we'd go see it, I'm like, you know what? That's pretty damn good. And I never have anything to like, you know, I, I always, you know, start to judge whether I really love each one as they come out. I remember uh, e even with Inglourious Bastards, I didn't love it when I first saw it. I was like, oh, this isn't my thing. And with I mentioned more time, this on, I mentioned this on our podcast. When Inglourious Bastards came out, I saw it the first day and I'm like, well, I'm going to see that again. And I saw it the next day again. <laughs> <laughs> but the, did it get better on that second viewing? I, I, no, it's more like, it's, it's rare something gets significantly better or worse. It's more like, I just continued really liking this thing and was now like, oh, look at that. I didn't see that the first time. Like, that's what it comes down to. Like, same with this movie. I saw this again yeah, yeah. last night. I saw it on Tuesday to Monday. And I was like, fine, well, now I can go see Ivana. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Mike, but I like, you... like rewatching things. I'm taking up a lot of time. I'm sorry. Mike, what do you think? You're Where are you at? No, no, no. <laughs> I uh, well, anybody who knows me knows that Tarantino is like just one of my diehards. And. I think along with Chris Nolan and David Fincher, those are probably the three di directors whose movies I just watch over and over and over again as casual, you know, time fillers. Once I've once I've watched them enough that there's literally nothing new I could see, I just want to live in those movies, and that's like this is how I do things. But uh, I I find I feel similarly to you. I mean, it's hard to rank these movies because whichever. Quentin Tarantino movie I'm watching is typically my favorite movie of all time. Like, that's how I feel, honestly, about almost every movie he's made. And I've given, like, you know, I'm one of those people in the common world who feel like Death Proof is his least, is my least favorite movie of his. But I, mm -hmm. I have watched it on a number of occasions. Like, I, I do enjoy that movie. I actually will watch it over and over again. I'll give it more shots. Like, I'll keep giving it. I see the quality. I see the moments that I'm supposed to love. And then I, I see moments that I'm like, this is not really for me. Like, let's go, let's go somewhere else. But I can watch it. Like, you know, most directors' worst movies, or, or not worst is a wrong word, but movies that you don't necessarily love are usually ones that you just sort of, delete from your memory and it's just like well that's not something that he did um i'll just i'll just watch the things i like I, I wouldn't feel that way about death proof so it's hard for me to say that any movie of his is not good uh it's just that my least favorite which is still probably in my top 150 of all time list if i had to make one so that aside I, go ahead go ahead I was going to say yeah i i actually agree with you as far as death proof being the film that i would regard as his I guess least accomplished, but yeah, I still am a big fan of it. We just recorded on our podcast out and out there in the We just recorded our death proof commentary for this month, which was a lot of fun to do just because it's we, most of us regard it as kind of one of the lesser Tarantino films. So it's like, how do you come at this? And you look at like what he's doing here and everything. It's like, 
yeah, it's like, even he thinks it's his worst film, at least whatever <laughs> film. But at the same time, it's like it's not like he phoned it in. Like he still made a movie that looks like a Tarantino film. See, this is what I like about him. <clears throat> My favorite mm-hmm. quality about him as a director is that uh, there are very few directors out there who the moment a frame jumps on screen, you know who made it. And mm-hmm. in part, that's because he uses the same font. In part, it's because he uses the same musical <laughs> styles. You know, and, and, and I don't think that's it, though. I mean, there's a type of movie that is a Quentin Tarantino movie. And don't, the closest you're going to come to it is maybe like Robert Rodriguez, uh, just because they've dabbled in the same worlds occasionally. I, I guess you could say that. But there's nothing like a Quentin Tarantino movie. And when he makes a new one, it's exciting because he has been selective, right? He doesn't just make tons of shit. Um, but he's always sort of around, and so you never forget that he's there, and you keep anticipating and waiting for his next movie, whereas you've mm-hmm. got directors who are super established and people love and wait for their next one, like Fincher, and you re- but, but they sort of aren't in the news all the time, and so you step back, and then one day you're like, huh, when's Fincher going to come out with another movie? And yet with Tarantino, we're all waiting, and he celebrates his own movies with fanfare, and I think at the end of the day, and this is something I want to get into about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think he's he always wears his own encyclopedia of knowledge on his sleeve in movies, right? It's like I feel like I'm being taught things in a fun and engaging way when I watch his movies. He always seems to be very clear that he knows more than you about whatever the topic is <laughs> that he's presenting. I literally know more than anybody else in the world about slavery. Here is your lesson. <laughs> I mean, like, obviously, he's not about almost any of these topics. But he has such confidence, and his work is so confident, and his writing is so slick, and everything that people say is engaging that I'm anticipating and waiting for that next monologue, right? Or that next anecdote or that next spurt of violence that came out of nowhere and is so exaggerated that you you can't help but laugh in a good way. And that's it's why a, I love movies a, like Django. That's why I love movies like mm-hmm. Kill Bill. You know, I mean, that's why I love Inglourious Bastards. All of those things exist exclusively and all over the place in those movies. It's the kind of thing where saying words like self-indulgent and pretentious, it's like, well, first off, all movies are self-indulgent and pretentious. That's a director's <laughs> doing this thing and saying, watch this for me. That's the definition of both terms. Um, but it's, with Tarantino, it's like, if that's the worst side effect, that, that that's not really a problem for me if I'm so entertained by, you know, much very lengthy movies that do so much as far as what they're putting on screen of actors and production design and dialogue and everything you just mentioned, Mike. I mean, there's there's plenty going on here. Like, it's never it's never empty, which is something I very much appreciate about this. I mean, there's plenty of style to be shown, but especially looking at some of these later films, there's a lot going on beneath the surface as well. But through through his his passion, especially for cinema, has made me want to explore more old movies. Um, and like in a way where I, I watch some people's movies and I'm like, you you make me not want to give a shit about the past of film. But like Tarantino actually gets me into it. I me- what well, I forget what it was. Um, but from Death Proof, it was like inspired by some old—I uh, forget the name right now—but some some other old like uh, car movie. And I remember like I went and found that on like DVD at the time it was the only way you could get it and watch that. And I was like, I don't, yeah, like the the women are big car chase movie fans, and like Vanishing Point was a big yeah, yeah, as far as what point, kind of car it was. Yeah, yeah, like it's just like stuff like that where I'm like, okay, some some 
you know, most of the time I just don't care or maybe I'll get to it one day. But this one, I was like, I have to go see this now and I have to explore his inspirations and what he's bring, bringing from his past and his history and his love into it. And just like, you just feel it in a way that I think is different than so many other filmmakers and what, like, what Mike said and what he puts into his films. And I, 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 don't know, I love that about them too. I always think when I talk about Tarantino, um, that like it's just like people are gonna listen to this and be like these whatever these guys nothing <laughs> nothing but praise for this guy what <laughs> well it's, like, it's fine this won't be an all praise podcast <laughs> okay no but I but I, but I, it's hard for Tarantino's one of those people who I think you you even if you don't love every one of his movies you still have to admire his filmmaking and it's I don't I don't want to get in trouble saying something here, but like, if, if someone hates Tarantino, I'm like, I, I just don't buy it. Like, maybe you don't like his later films, okay, sure, but you, you, there's, I guarantee you every person has one Tarantino film they love, which is, that's a good thing, at least. And he's, he, of course he's changed. I'll tell you a story about my wife and Tarantino, because I think it's a great example of how people who don't have podcasts about movies feel about him. Um... <laughs> Which is to say, he put this on himself, to put it simply, right? Which is that he now is associated with extreme violence, mm. uh, bloody violence, and vulgar language. And it is such a small part of what makes Tarantino movies, right? But it is such an easy thing to see and to think about before you walk into a theater. And so, you know, my wife, who's not a prude when it comes to movies, you know, she just won't watch horror movies because they, they make her anxious. She doesn't want to purposely get anxious so you know she'll watch almost any movie and she's gone to every in every quentin tarantino movie that's ever released since we started dating um she's game but you know she is very uncomfortable with the way that he presents the non-story driven moments of his films the violence that's inspired by the classic spaghetti westerns where it's a lot of sort of calm and then sudden violence and, and and that's awesome to me and I love it and I love that I know sort of where it comes from also the Japanese cinema but you know I know where it comes from so it adds a layer for me but for her she's experienced this moment in its moment and for what it is there and there alone and in it it's too much and for a lot of people I think that's just that that is it and Tarantino has been very open about like, well, if that if it's too much, it's too much for you. I'm not going to slow it down because uh, you can't handle it. I'm not trying to make a PG-13 movie here. And yet Inglorious Bastards is one of her favorite movies of all time. It's try I try and explain that to me. You can't. <laughs> I mean, uh, it is so violent. You know, I mean, we were I mean, watching it again. It's not I think compared to Kill Bill and Django and Hateful Eight, I think that's probably the fourth most violent movies made. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, even but the we're talking like the violence that happens is pretty. It occurs in spurts. Yeah, I mean, she won't watch Kill like, Bill with me. She won't. She won't mm -hmm. watch Kill Bill uh, at all. And even though it's probably one of my top five favorite movies of all time, and Inglorious Bastards probably also somehow in my top five, which is probably twenty movies deep. But the <laughs> you know the 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 moment where the, where the bear Jew comes out and bashes the Nazi skull in, which is the first serious moment of violence in the film that's visible. I mean, you see the, the opening sequence has some violence, but it's less visible. This is the first like Tarantino close up violence moment. And she cringes 
but then she's right back in it right after that scene because the movie's just so damn good and the characters are so memorable and the dialogue is so just full of detail and it's perfectly cast and to awkwardly transition us into this movie I just like I was not feeling all that about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I didn't feel all the same feelings I've had for almost all of his other movies but that's not to say I didn't I didn't think this was a quality a quality movie I didn't enjoy a lot of it but I'm still struggling with how I feel about it and I need to see it twice so I am lacking in that department I I do hear this from a lot of people now that it's a movie that you really will like more the second time, regardless of how much you did or didn't like it the first time. I love hearing that kind of thing. Cause it makes me wonder how one chooses to view a movie. I like, when did you, when did you see it? Like uh, f- Friday. Okay. So you got Very a couple recently. days in. Yeah. You got a couple days in. So you've had time to think about it and what happened. Yeah. And I haven't stopped. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> which well, not surprising. I mean, there's a lot to digest there at the same time. I think I'd be mean, part of it. Speaking as one who thinks it's terrific, I think I thought the film was absolutely fantastic. Um, it, it ranks right up there with my favorite Tarantino films. Um, but as far as like needing to see it again to digest more, is I wonder if that has more to do with just kind of the kind of downshift that he's doing here compared to his previous films, where Django and Hateful Eight specifically, those are movies that they fit very much into the vibe of a typical Tarantino film as far as the way we spread out violence and the language and what have you. And it has this, especially Django, there's like, there's a sort of propulsion to it where this is much more laid back. This is a movie that Alex has not seen, but it's a lot more like Jackie Brown and Inglorious Bastards <laughs> uh, as far as we're taking a lot of times just spending with these characters and easing into the conversations they're having and what have you, as opposed to a something more, like I said, more propulsive, which I mean, a movie like this, you can assume one, and many have, one could assume there's a way to handle this, given that many people want to speak up more about the Manson family aspect than what the film's actually about, which, to be fair, if you're marketing this, or you're just just announcing this movie, yeah, that's going to be the thing that makes the headlines. Tarantino is making a film about the Mansons, where that's there, it's on the fringes, but it's really a movie about two guys that are hanging out in the Hollywood and on there's a B plot that involves Sharon Tate walking around town. I remember back and when the, everybody thought, oh shit, so... DiCaprio's playing Marilyn Manson? <laughs> like, <laughs> there was a time where we've all been obsessed with the Manson part of this movie for a long time. Charlie, Charlie Manson. Yeah. Did I say Marilyn Manson? Yeah. I do yeah. that all the time. I also can't I can't say the name of this movie. I say Once Upon a Time in Mexico every time. But honestly, honestly, Mike, I could believe at some point people thought he really was playing Marilyn Manson. <laughs> like, oh, Tarantino's making a Marilyn Manson movie. No, I, um... Mike, I think I understand how you felt because when I first saw this, I saw this in Cannes and then I saw it again on Friday as well. Um, what were the differences? I, there's actually two little things, but um, I'll get into them later. But okay, I, cool. um, when I first saw it, I think that the first thing that came to my mind, and I think a lot of people, and Aaron, I think you're not this way, but I think for a lot of people, the first thing that came to mind when I was watching was like, where is this all leading? Because there was this like, since it is a Tarantino movie, we can't pretend there isn't some kind of hype and expectation on it. Like, there's no way he can make a movie in a complete vacuum that no one has any idea and he just suddenly premieres it out of nowhere, right? Like, it is a Tarantino movie. You know, the script, I think, got leaked or was that Hateful Eight? That was know. Hateful Eight, yeah. But it's like, it's like, you know, enough people know about it for years now that it's not like, you know, so there's always some sort of built-in, I don't want to say expectation, but, but something there that when we go into it thinking. 
And um, of, of course, since the Manson name was mentioned so much, that's kind of what was on my mind. And of course, the whole movie, I'm like, okay, they're driving around. Where are they going? You know, what what's going to get to it? And of course, you get to that big moment at the end where, you know, I guess it's a payoff moment. Of course, after going through two hours of them driving around, but then you're well, like, it's, hey, a, it's a, a. I mean, the movie's a pressure valve, Adrian. Yeah. That's that's the release. Yeah. But but by the end of it, like I got out of it, and I was like, hmm, I don't know what to think. Like. Was that really a, a good enough release? Especially because I think what you mentioned, Aaron, is, is, is a key point here, which is that after Django and after Hateful Eight, which is just like consistent violence throughout, of course, with also big payoff moments, you're, like I'm, I, it was just kind of like, oh, that's it, you know? And it was either, I was either almost like wanting more of one way or another. I was either like, I don't need a violent payoff at the end and you can just give me a straight buddy story or... I was expecting more violence throughout and even like playing up the fantasy angle of it where it's alternate history, like throw more of that in there, you know, kill some people at the ranch or something. But like he, you know, that, that, that like two hour chunk at the beginning, which is not just the beginning, but that whole initial part before you get to the final payoff just felt so just like, uh, I get not, not disjointed, but unbalanced to me. And so by the end, I just didn't know what to feel. And I wasn't like, I don't know. And I, and then I came out of it and then I, and then with time I've been able to think about it and go back in for a second time and enjoy it more as what you said, Aaron, which is like a really a buddy movie about these two guys. Um, and not, are really we, at some murders, but, are, yeah. are we going, are we, are we going full spoilers already? Like, can yeah, I say no. things or you want me to hold back? I, I, we are, but I, I forgot that we should warn people. <laughs> okay. Like, like from now well, on, if you have, we haven't, we haven't said anything yet. So I mean, I know, <laughs> just I, I want to know. I was, I was about to say it, and then I was like, well, maybe I should just put it before we like from now on. Yes, from now on, spoiler territory because okay. um, this film really needs it, especially to get into where it goes with the with sure. the man, quote unquote Manson family. Of course, I mean, one thing I want to mention is is Mike asked me this like the day I got out of it and Kenny's like what happens to to, to um Charles Manson like what and I was like he's not in the movie. And it's one of those things like people just don't get and it's like yeah, but that's actually the coolest part about it is that I was not, I didn't believe you. you know? I didn't yeah. believe you. I was like what are you talking about? Yes he is. Yeah. We, we, what do you what did you go to the bathroom for 30 minutes? Like he's he has to be in the movie. Because there was also the, the the bearded guy was in the trailer and everyone thought it was him, but he's just another like Manson Ranch dude. Um, what what are I, we saying right now? The, 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 there was no Charlie Manson in it. Yeah, he is. No, that that was yeah. Charles Manson. That one guy. Yeah, the was guy Charles that Manson. shows up. The guy that shows up at the house. That's Charles Manson. And which which house? What are you talking about? When the guy when the guy comes in, and he's like, "Hey, does Terry live here?" And Emil Hirsch is there, and he's like, "Oh, Terry moved out and everything." And Sharon Tate comes like, "Who's that?" And he's like, "Oh, uh, this guy's is friends of Terry and everything." That's Charles Manson. That, that's Damon Harriman. He's playing Charles Manson. <laughs> oh, the, you're talking about the very, very final shot of the movie. No, no not the very like final halfway shot. Halfway through, when Brad Pitt's on the roof and he sees the like the ice cream truck pull around, the guy gets out, walks up the the road up to Sharon Tate's house, and he's like, "Hey, is Terry there?" That's that's <laughs> maybe Charles this Manson. is when I went to the bathroom. No, um. It was not. It, it didn't take very yes. long. It's the first time you start to wonder if something's gonna happen. Something bad's about no, to happen. I, because I thought it was. A, I thought it was a smart, creative choice for Tarantino to basically have it be about Manson, but never have him actually be in it. Because I guess he's, aside he's, from, in it, he's in it for less than two minutes, but he's barely right, in it. Aside but, from that shot, like he's not at the ranch. They specifically mention at the ranch that he's not there. He, and, oh yeah, he's you know, he's not. You know, yeah, that that's it. He has a cameo. That's the extent of Charles Manson's involvement. But in I movie. but I love that because. Uh, like one other thing I wanted to admit in this podcast is that I absolutely like despise the whole Manson thing. Like it, I know it's a, 
No, because because <laughs> I I don't <laughs> like the OJ Simpson murders. I'll tell you. No, I don't mean it. I don't mean it like that. It's like it's like one of these things where it's just like uh, 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 an important part of American history, and everyone from another generation that I know, film critic wise, is like, oh, they're always intrigued by it. And they want to see every Manson movie, and every time someone makes a new Manson movie, I'm like, I couldn't care less. I just don't like. I don't give two shits about it and what happened. None of it bothers me. And of course, I know if you're from that era, it was like such a major moment that it still like lingers as something that bothers you. And so actually this whole time, like leading up to Tarantino's making a Manson movie, I was like, oh, I'm really dreading this. Let me me throw this out because this is all the things I have, like as far as the kind of quote unquote controversy of things that didn't actually happen. Like the announcement of this, my thought was, well, Tarantino's not an idiot. Like he's not going to make a movie that that goes over the slaughter of Sharon Tate and her friends at her house. Like that's ridiculous. There's no Sony's not going to be like, yeah, that sounds good. And like he didn't get script approval from Sharon Tate's sister because she's like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do that movie. Like that's not that was never going to be a thing. I kept equating this to being something like Spike Lee's Summer of Sam, where Sam was there, like he's there, but he's not the focus of the movie. The focus is on the people around him. And this movie's even less than that. Manson's bare. Like, that old stuff is even yeah. less involved than I thought that was. So my presumption, which was mostly correct, is even less of a factor than it actually ended up being. And as far as how they're portrayed in this movie, I am a huge fan of it because of how much it demystifies them. Instead of showing them as this like menacing threat that's always there or this cold, calculating group of evil people, they're just idiots. They're a bunch of idiots that live on a ranch. They're a bunch of of hippies that Leonardo DiCaprio hates. And when they actually get to do something, they're still a bunch of dummies. And then the way Tarantino chooses to change history, it makes them not just like not just like a thing that didn't actually doesn't occur anymore in his version of the world, but who cares? Like, it's not like he, if anything, going to the ranch or having like Bruce Lee, I know a lot of people speculated Bruce Lee would like come in and help save the day or something. Not only does he not do that kind of stuff and like just really set fire to everything involving them. He just kills the three guys, the three, uh, the guy and the two guys, the two women that are there and just is like, whatever, that's it. There's no, no mystif, no like, there's no deeper layer to Manson and all of this stuff as far as how the media is going to choose to look at him in this version of history that he's chosen to go with. It's just yeah. a group of people that got involved in a thing and failed spectacularly, but who cares? Like, yeah, but that's, like, well, that's what I'm saying. I really appreciate that. No, I'm saying, I agree with you at that level. Like, it's, And you're, you're talking about not like going out to see Manson movies or even serial killer movies in general. It's like, I'm not too far away from you on that. I don't like here like we're gonna make a jeffrey dahmer movie and be like oh i gotta see that right away it's like okay maybe i'll see that yeah, like it doesn't like get me excited to see movies about people that did things horrible of course like of course. i i have a lot of respect for like united 93 for example but it's not like i need to keep watching that movie over and over again to like get something out of it it's like this is a horrible thing and i saw the movie it's well directed but i don't need to watch it again like that's it right. <laughs> this is also i'm coming off of um because i had seen this and i don't know if it's i think it just came out in the u.s there's this film called charlie says from uh made by mary heron and it's a literal, like, uh, trying to interpret, like, th- this is what I feel like. There's this fascination with, you know, how did he convince all these girls to follow him and do his orders and do his bidding? And and there's, like, this, like, to me, lingering thing from, again, that generation that was around when it happened. And that this whole movie tries to address that. And I had seen that, and I was coming into this, like, I just don't want any of that, you know? And I actually, one of the things I wanted to address on this podcast was the notion of the, the Mansons and hippies. And I've read a lot of criticism on Twitter about how Tarantino hates hippies, Tarantino hates hippies. And what I know, which again is a 33-year-old man who wasn't alive in the 60s, is that um, the, the Manson family to me is 
conflated with hippies because they were whatever, but th they aren't what I know of as hippies. They are exactly what you just described, Aaron, which is just these dumb group of people who got sucked into this idiot's world and who, yes, they lived a hippie-ish life, but the, to me, the fact that you can then take that and say, oh, Tarantino hates hippies and that's why he kills them all and that's why he does all these things to them. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. He just hates the Manson family. He just hates all those girls. He just hates this, that. He doesn't, there's no, like, of course, um, Cliff's character makes a bunch of comments about hippies and, and it, it comes up and, like, you know, there's a general distaste. But, like, it didn't feel to if me anything, that Tarantino Cliff, hates hippies, you know? Rick is the one that seems to have utter contempt right. for them. Right. Like, Cliff is right. like, oh, yeah, I'll pick up this hitchhiker and, do, like, figure things out. Like, it's... <laughs> it's well, but until but in, but until he, she starts saying things to him, too, and he's like, oh. <laughs> but still, so, like, he's, he's, like, he's, he's, like, te he's tempting fate. That's what he seems to be doing to himself there. And then when he gets to Spawn Ranch, it's like, well, now it's, it's less about what could I do with hippies and more about what's going on here and what's going on with this person I know. Like, there's 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 deeper layers that suddenly settle right, in. But I, but I think Tarantino hates the Manson family way more than he hates hippies. Oh, and for that sure. That's just, this that's I, this movie. I'm going mean, to digitally but, but, raise my hand here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mike's about to, to drop in with something. Okay, no, ahead. I mean, look, first of all, I, I do think I don't have a problem with it. I don't give a fuck about hippies. <laughs> but I mean, I do think that this film is, is if if you have to call it such, very anti-hippie. I mean, it's not well, just be, be, because of the scene in which the director wants him, who's playing, a, wants DiCaprio's character as a bad guy in a western to look like a hippie. Oh, right, right, right. And how was, much... I thought that was a funny scene. It was super yeah. funny, but I think that... I think that plays towards a DiCap DiCaprio's own, you know, not, dis dislike of hippies more than him trying to make a statement about hippies as a whole. I think it's more like, we already know he hates hippies at this point. While I agree with you, I did feel like DiCaprio was one of our vessels for emotion, right? He's one of our main characters that we, the director is sending his own thoughts and vibes out through. And yes, it's it. you could isolate him as a character of that time. There were people in the late 60s who hated hippies, and therefore we're going to include one of those as our main characters. The other character being somebody who's more ambivalent against it, doesn't really necessarily think about it, actually kind of looks at a hippie and doesn't see a hippie, just sees a hot chick, you know? <laughs> um, so I don't necessarily think it's a very specifically anti-hippie movie in the in the sense that it's, it's, uh, it's prejudice against them, because there's not, it, it, it's, it's not happening throughout the whole movie. There's just a select few moments. Mm -hmm. But I do think that it's, it's embracing the idea that the Manson family existed because of hippie culture in the first place. That be, that whole mindset of living like, you know, just living loose, man, and just following your vibes and dealing with just being a little high and just. Yeah, but hippies think, don't kill anyone. That's the problem. The Manson Hippies don't kill anybody, <laughs> but, but there is a pretty good consensus, I think, that the, the reason these people were susceptible to Charles Manson's crazy religious zealot mindset that led to murdering people was because they were just so loose and with the times and kind of thought there was more stuff out there and they were they were just casual in the way that hippie culture allowed you to be casual and not think well, through those things like that was that's the stereotype against hippies at the time the, the ones the ones a part of the man's family are weak-minded that's a big part of it i mean i don't disagree with a lot of what you're saying here i think we should, if we could broaden out a bit, I think the bigger thing is what he's trying to say about this era. 
And he clearly has this kind of rose-colored glasses on the idea of Hollywood in this time. And one of the elements that's taking this time away is hippies. Another is, yes, this horrible <laughs> event that happened with Sharon Tate that he corrects, essentially, yeah. among other things. And like he's using DiCaprio and Booth as vessels for what seems like himself as far as people that are getting older as things are moving on past them. So you have a director telling DiCaprio as director like a hippie. Well, like, yeah, hippies are, that's a popular thing now, as opposed to when he was more of a star when he was on Bounty Law. And so it's like, yeah, he he's rejecting this concept because it's like, this is further showing how displaced I am from society these days. It's and I the, think that's the best way mm -hmm. of, of analyzing this movie. I think mm -hmm. you're absolutely on the spot. Okay. I mean, yeah, I, I'm I, like, only I sort we're... of hypothesizing out loud. Sure. And, uh, but I, what, what I was saying, because I have literally never thought about hippies once in my life. It's before my time, <laughs> except for when Bill Walton was on, like, doing TV stuff uh, for the NBA. And that was – I used to like the NBA. I don't even like them anymore. So all that history aside, it's like I don't care about hippies. I've never thought yeah. about hippies. This movie didn't make me want to think about them anymore. It made me think about uh, – Tarantino's like bucket list which is what I feel like every Tarantino movie is about in many ways it's like all there's this checklist he has that he has to get through before he dies or makes his 10 movies like one of them is you know make a western or one of them is yeah. is yeah. actually show spaghetti westerns being made the process by which they existed and how they were perceived as a negative back then but now we love them and uh, you know, I mean, there were a lot of things where I could see through all of this. I could see through the uh, the celluloid. Like I could see <laughs> Quentin Tarantino Ooh. writing down in his little, probably typewriter, getting with a big smile on his face, being like, "These fuckers are gonna be so happy," and. And I liked that. I like feeling that when I watch Tarantino movie. And so there was plenty of that to go around. No question. Yeah. I what did. I would say, what I would say, in, in addition to that, it's like, yes, I think he's he's doing something he's always wanted to do. As far as like, you have a lot of characters in his previous films, especially his, you know, his modern day films, speaking in reference to a lot of the things that we see in this movie. And now he's making a movie that's directly showing you the things that people have referenced in his other movies. And I think he finds that quite clever. I also find that quite clever. So good on him. But at the same time, he's rubbing that up against where he sees himself in the world. And that's why I say I, that he's very clearly using uh, Booth and Dalton as like vessels for himself, cooler versions of himself, perhaps, but like guys that have grown up seeing things a certain way and now they're getting older and they're getting, they're not being able to do as many of the things they used to be able to do, which is a lot like Tarantino where he's at a place where the world has changed around him and he can still make something unique every now and again, but he has to also contend with the many different popular brands of stuff that's also happening. And along with how society's reacting to things, I, I don't think it's a surprise to see certain elements in this film as far as what we see some of the actors go through or what have you based around things that we've heard about as far as other Tarantino movies or people he's been associated with. I think there's a lot in his mind that he's really putting out into this movie that has to do with him getting older and dealing with that fact. Yeah, and to take it even further, there's this idea that the, these old Hollywood guys, this this old system that he's representing, can literally beat up the the hippies, so to say again, and save the day. Like when it actually comes down to it, these guys are important to us. And even in the even the ending moment where um, uh, uh, I forget his character, um, 
uh, at the gate at the end where he's basically Jay like, Zierberg. I love, yeah, sorry. Uh, JC, he's like, I love uh, Rick Dalton. Like, I've loved you on Battle It's like, he thinks this whole time he's like, no one gives a shit about me. No one cares. And then suddenly, like, the person he wants to meet the whole time, he's like, oh, my God, he actually loves me and he actually cares. And that's, like, a good reminder for Tarantino, too. Like, not only can they actually beat up and save the day, but also people do love this old work. And it does mean something to them. And it is still important to them. Even well, that you, speaks. That speaks know, to he, the fantasy of this movie. That's why yeah, I'm. Yeah. I, I'm. A, I'm big on how titles appear in film. <laughs> like it's been. It's been ever since. Um, God. Ever ever since Batman v Superman was like Zack Snyder chose <laughs> to put it in the bottom corner in small fonts and be like, that's weird for like an epic movie like this. Like Batman v Superman, Tom Justice. Like okay, I've I've been fast. I've been very, very happy to see like what directors choose to do in showing their titles. And so this movie, I really like where at the, it's it doesn't come till the very end yeah. when Dalton's living this. He like op- the gates open. He goes up to this fantasy world that he wants to be a part of, where he gets to meet the meet the actors that will maybe get him a connection to Roman Polanski and get him a new career or something, and then. The title "Once Upon a Time in Hollywood" appears, and it's like that speaks to the fantasy that we're watching here. Where, yeah, this old guy, this older actor, is like suddenly getting praised by the new crew in town. It's like, yeah, that's like that's a thing. That's that's wish fulfillment. That's what that is. I I was also, I'm, I'm fascinated by the the fact that he didn't include anything else that was happening at the time. I mean, he didn't. Uh, The moon landing, nothing. Nothing. The moon landing is completely absent. The Muhammad Ali conviction that happened like the week before this didn't get brought up yet. They had a Muhammad Ali dialogue scene, so like mm-hmm. I, 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 it, it, it was so bizarre to me. I was thinking about it for like a split second, just like where is all the other stuff, and it didn't cross my mind until, <clears throat> until Aaron, you mentioned just the the focus on, um, basically like hippie culture taking away the prime of all these other things just taking the spotlight i mean that's a really is that kind of what you were saying right i didn't misinterpret that yeah yeah. i mean as far as not not necessarily only hippies but just the fact that there's a new guard coming in essentially right just this sort of cultural shift that i'm Mm -hmm. assuming a lot of people at the time were like this is the way people think about millennials now. You know, they, these fucking yeah, sure. kids are literally changing what was good once. And uh, for whatever other po- political things were going on at the time, we are really only living in a world in which some our main character is about as self-involved as it gets. Why would he care about the moon landing? Why would he care about Muhammad Ali getting convicted? It's not part of his... He only cares about furthering his career and getting famous again. And so those things wouldn't come up. Although at the same time, I still felt like there was a lot of moment. There were a lot of moments in the film to sort of anchor in those things happening on the fringe and him actively not participating in those conversations. I would have felt more engaged in his self-obsession with his own career if I saw things like that going on. Like it was, it was a lot of watching him go through a career process in two hours that I thought I already understood within 15 minutes. And then you have characters like Al Pacino, which was really fun. And he does boom, zang, zoom. (laughs) And he does all these great things and very memorable. But then by the end of the movie, you're like, huh? Yeah. Well, Pacino was like, came and went. And um, I get by the end, I get how it all works as this really cool butterfly effect movie. 
Like it, 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 it's, it's a hypothesis on what if all these things happened? What if his career was fading because of this and then they got this opportunity and he went to Italy and then he came back and then this happened and they went to the party that night so they were drunk so they came home and he had an acid cigarette and all these like what ifs that are a two hour and 45 minute version of the scene from uh, uh, sorry I just got distracted uh Man, you holding us on the... What scene, Mike? What scene? Mm-hmm. The movie you just watched that I love so much. Bunch Benjamin Button. Sorry. Oh, it's man. like a two-hour and 45-minute version of the Benjamin Button scene where she gets hit by a car. The what if. Oh, right, right, and right. in theory, on paper, I absolutely love that idea. I love the idea of following an, an actor who who is getting really close to being a has-been and is desperate to get his career back and makes a, a series of decisions that in the moment isolate his friend and uh, stuntman who then goes off on these little side adventures and gets caught up in the Manson family but doesn't actually get caught up in the Manson family and then they all converge in a classic convergence scene from Tarantino at the end where we rewrite history. And I'm like, that sounds like the best fucking movie of all time. And yet, somehow, I wasn't feeling it. I just, I wasn't feeling it. Well, I mean, I don't know what to tell you as far as that. I mean, if you're not feeling it, you're not feeling it. You can't, it. There's you can't, can, there's nothing to say. I, I'm not. Yeah, there's nothing to say to that. What I, what I can say is, like, the movie, I mean, if you want to talk about, like, things going on inside, like, around the time of what's happening and around these people, it's like, well, I mean, you can watch Forrest Gump. Like, and you can, if you want that kind of movie, that's that kind of movie. Or but Watchmen. what I like about Terry, what I like, or watch, well, Watchmen, I mean, Yes, you're not wrong. It's it's deliberate. I mean, ben, Benjamin Button, for that matter, is similar to that, except it's not going over specific events in history all the time. But with that, all of that in mind, what I that brings me to something I love about Tarantino's films, where he's a big process director, and I'm a huge fan of process in films. It's not just like showing you that Brad Pitt's going to feed a dog. He's going to show you all the steps that involve feeding a dog, and that's this movie as a whole. He's he's showing you. It's only three days that we watch with some interspersial, you know side trips to daydreams and like a recap of what happened in the six months between day two and day three. But what we're watching makes sense as far as what a person would experience in a day. I mean, if on two on three random days, you're not going to be like, here's all the things that are happening. Also, Hey, did you hear about the moon landing the other day? Wasn't that crazy. And also Muhammad Ali changed his name. That's wild. Like people don't speak like that, honestly, all the time. And he's chosen, he's chosen to spell to tell a very specific story that focuses on these three people and what's going on with them at the time of place that he's just decided to show what's going on with them. If it doesn't sound engaging in the, or it doesn't come off as engaging, again, I can't do anything about that. But I also, I don't, I, I don't think I'd find anything, I don't think I'd grasp anything better about a film like this if it suddenly inserted like major events from history that occurred either. I don't think you're saying that necessarily either. Yeah. You're just saying you didn't feel, you didn't get a feeling, you didn't get the, the, the right feel that you think you wanted to get out of this movie specifically. That's fair. I mean, not everyone's going to like everything. That's just how it is. As much as Alex believes that La La Land is perfect and everyone's probably going to like it, like that's just not how it's going to be. I mean, <laughs> sadly, sadly. I mean, yeah, no. Casually, I I started to notice things, and I I in in hindsight, I think some of those things I noticed were because myself as an individual was not wholly engaged in what was happening in the moment. I was caught up in the Tarantino history and wondering when some shit's going to go down, and then yeah, I got exactly. actually like legit frustrated by the the fake out. That he did where we go to the ranch, right? And then we think some shit's about to go down and we get to the back room and then it's just Bruce Dern being funny as hell. But like, why? 
I was just so well, frustrated by it. Well, let's. Talk, I it's mean, like my least favorite scene. <laughs> I disagree, but let's talk about that. What I yeah. like about that scene and a couple other scenes is how tense they are. It's. Scenes, I thought. Yeah, yeah. I, I found how it was amazing to be how tense that scene is. Of Brad Pitt slowly getting up to that point, right. getting into the discussion with Dakota Fanning, going into the back room. It's like, what's going to happen here? And my thought is like, do we do we still need Brad Pitt in this movie? Like, is he going to die right now? Like, I was really, yeah. I was happy to be engaged on that level. As far as not only am I just enjoying the filmmaking going on here, but like, where's my concern supposed to be? Do I have to worry about Cliff Booth dying at this ranch of hippies? Cause we don't know where the story's going. And like, yeah. I've watched the trailers, but it's like, it's not like the, the, that move, the trailers have shown me like Brad Pitt, like doing anything of significance, like in a scene I haven't seen yet. So it's like, is he going to die? Like, are someone going to shoot him in the face right now? Is, is Charlie Mann's going to come out? Like, I don't know. And I, and that plays up again. Like, I don't know what's going to happen at the end of this movie. I, I, have presumptions that Tarantino's not going to show the on-screen murder of an eight-and-a-half-month pregnant woman. But besides that, like, I'm, something's going to happen, and it's going to be pretty wild. And, I mean, I got that. It's like, I, but I, I appreciated how he's able to kind of turn back and forth on whether it's comedic tension or dramatic tension. Like, it, it really worked for me. And if you're going to give me a reveal of Bruce Dern in a bed being blind and being really grouchy at Brad Pitt, I'm all for that, too. Like, I'm, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. That's, but that's what annoyed... That was the scene that annoyed me, because I loved all the tension. I thought that was great. But then, like, Bruce Dern, I felt like he was like, oh, I like Bruce Dern, I'm just going to put him in this role, instead of it being was, like... It, well, it oh, was going to be Burt Reynolds. Really that, was supposed to be the, that was supposed to be the Burt Reynolds role uh, before he passed okay. away. Because, it, it, like, by the time you get to him and Bruce's performance, which is... He's, he's a fine actor now, like, he's old, being kooky old guy, but like, it just, like, bothered me. Just that bedroom scene. Where he was just like, I felt like it went on a little too long. Where he's like, "Leave me alone! I just want to go to sleep." You're just like, "Oh my!" I god. like him. He keeps going back and forth. The first like, he's like, "Who is this?" Then he's like, "All right." Then he's like, "You've touched me for coming here." And then, <laughs> then he keeps asking about the people on the ranch. That scene was my favorite movie of the year so far. Does that make any yeah, sense? The like, scene the, from like the minute the... that he gets to the ranch. Uh huh. To the minute he leaves was my favorite movie of the year. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Only that part. I loved every single second of it. I was like, here we fucking go. This is what I'm here for. This is what I pay for. Quentin Tarantino tension, some music that's diegetic, but it works. Great actors popping up out of nowhere. Just like, I love this. This is perfect. And then it ended and I got mad. I was like, what the fuck? Oh, my. Uh, I was like, okay, okay. So there will, there, I'm sure there'll be payoff later. But what the fuck? And there is. Like, you just, you, you just, this, that was, that was legitimate blue balls. That is movie blue balls in a nutshell right there. And in some cases, I would praise it for doing that. But I, I was so frustrated. <laughs> I don't even remember what the next scene was. I don't. The next scene. What is the I, next scene? It's 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 DiCaprio um, doing his acting. I oh right, it just cuts right into the like the West scene. Yeah, yeah. The the second time around, it's it's yeah. a, it's it's after he flubbed his lines. It's the second time when he gives it the perform the when he gives yeah, evil like, sexy Hamlet. It cuts to like the horses riding in, and then uh, and then like it plays out the whole scene in in the. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The weird the, yeah. And, and again, like we, we, that scene was great too. Like we're getting a collection of great scenes. The pace is picking up. I felt like the moment when he said, um, when he was talking to the girl, and he was basically giving a fourth wall breaking speech, right? About this is a literal interpretation of where our character that you've been watching so far is at in his life. 
and then he actually starts to cry so it 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 it, it didn't feel pompous it didn't feel like quentin tarantino being cute it felt authentic and really great because it was the actor embracing the thing that the the story is putting him in and then we get this scene of the ranch and then we come back to the scene of him doing the performance with the trailer line of that was you know the greatest acting i've ever seen and like it was all so much great movie making and i loved it and i thought well, here we go we're like the roller coaster has hit the top and now we're going to go down and we're going to do all these spinny moves and it's going to be non-stop until the end <laughs> and and it didn't feel like that it felt like two yeah. really high slow um you know like crawls Swoosh straight down back up to another high crawl and then a quick vertical leap down and that's the whole ride it was not exciting non-stop and that's okay it doesn't have to be but that's why i keep coming back to like i i specifically i think that i need to watch this movie again more than more yeah, than it, anybody that's that's what i was gonna say like i and i'm not claiming to be some kind of movie savant where i just get things the first time around and never again do i need to come back because i'm right like but it's like i just i don't know i just fell into the vibe of what it was going for but if you're if you're telling me like you had certain expectations well obviously you know that <laughs> that plays into what you think when you see the movie for the first time and so it i'm not saying that you're going to suddenly like the movie more or less i'm just thinking the way you're describing things to me it does seem like there's a lot of expectation of what you think's going to happen versus what he's throwing at you and what he's throwing at you tended ended up being something that was not only unexpected but seemed to play against where you would have liked yes. things to yes. go yes, yes. And and I, I know that's not a fair way to watch every well, it's, movie. It's not unfair if you if you did grasp something, you didn't grasp something. That's not right. that's not unfair. Like you know, and I you know, art art is subjective in so many ways. Absolutely not true. <laughs> and I and I'm the kind of person who will watch a movie like this and not feel like my opinion is permanent. You know, I think a lot of people do watch movies um, they they didn't necessarily like, and they just they want to tell everybody that it's not good. It period. It's just not good, and it never will be good, and and I and I hate that. You know, that's just a horrible, horrible way to experience movies, cinema, film, whatever type you're watching. And there's a lot of that on film Twitter, and it's a really just toxic way of approaching movies. But I also I can I I get it. Like just some movies you don't want to relive. Um, but I've I, I think Quentin Tarantino has earned um, a rewatch. Like he's. He's proven time and time again that his movies aren't just, you know, a one-hit wonder and that's it. Like, he's a true talent, and he doesn't half-ass his movies. He didn't just put this out because somebody released a documentary about, uh, I was going to say Ted Bundy, I, you know. Manson. Uh, Manson. Like, people releasing documentaries <laughs> about famous murder cases, so oh, I should jump on that on that train and just make this movie. Like, he wanted to do this, and that passion makes his movies great. Even if, on first attempt, it didn't grab you. Hateful Eight did not grab me the first time. Not at all. It's still low on my list of his movies, but I found myself re-watching it and really enjoying it. Really enjoying the pace and the style of that movie. And I think I'll feel that way about this one as well. And I hope there's people who are listening who felt the way I did about the movie and this conversation is sort of giving it extra context. I mean, I think that's what these conversations are for is building on it and not just saying, oh, remember that scene when, like, um, 1969 L.A. was in, or Hollywood was in the background and it was so real? I mean, how did he do that? Which I would like to talk about, but it shouldn't be the only thing we discuss when we come to remember, movies like this. Remember that Remember that scene where all the neon lights light up? <laughs> that was cool. 
That's pretty cool. Uh, Alex, so cool. <laughs> um, I, I feel like I got a good idea of where Mike is on all of this, and I get it, and I respect it, and I'm happy to talk to him about it. We're, I think we understand I really like this movie. I think I've made that clear as well. Yeah. You don't know Alex, how I fit in on it? Where were you here? Where were you? No, I, I was actually just going to say that I... Uh, what Mike said is a lot of what I felt the first time. It, it didn't. It didn't come together for me until I saw it the second time. Actually, the first time I got out of it, I was like, "This is like low on my Tarantino favorite list." Um, but I also didn't want to say that, like, in a way where I knew I needed to see again before I really put it in a specific place. And actually, one of the things that has made me feel a little bit better about it, especially going into the second time, was a, a way a lot of people have been describing it in reviews. I think even in your review, Aaron, is calling it like a sweet movie. Like it's it's not it, it plays against the Tarantino grain, especially like the Hateful Eight grain, where everyone's just out against each other and some shit's gonna go down. Everyone's gonna kill each other. This was like a really nice buddy movie. Not nice, but you know, like like the relationship between Cliff. And Dalton is great, and like that's actually the core of the movie. And, and they're I not—they're not together very much in the movie either, which I think speaks to how well it, <laughs> it kind of works. As far yeah, as but, but you—but you feel their friendship through every every bit of interaction they have. Um, and I think that I w there were some times when I was reading the set reports where like that was the way it was explaining. It was like the plot synopsis was just one sentence being like. It's about a friendship between a, a fading actor and his stunt double. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And if you look at it that way, it's like, oh, that's actually what it is. Not about the Mansons, but that friendship, that sort of the way they play off of each other. And as you said earlier, and the way that like it, it goes off in a little bit of that story, it goes off in a little bit of this story with him. And they each go do their own things, you know, back and forth. It, it, that I don't know that when I saw it again, thinking about that in my mind and thinking about the sweetness of it, which plays against what we expect from Tarantino, actually made me enjoy it more. And I felt like I was enjoying scenes where I could like laugh more. Of, co of course, because I knew it was coming, but just watching them play together, I don't know. There was just something about it that, that pulled it in and came together a lot better for me on that second time. Um, and this is also a, a great moment for me to mention before I forget about it. The, 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 at least the two things I think that were added between the can version and now, because one of them actually made it better. Um, one of them was, uh, it's in, I think it's in the middle when he's talking about, um, he's on the Western set talking about something, and he refers to uh, how he was supposed to get the McQueen role in The Great Escape, but he wasn't. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and it cuts to uh, The Great Escape, and it has DiCaprio... <laughs> you know in the literal footage yeah that, that wasn't in the can cut oh okay he hadn't, he hadn't prepared the great escape footage with dicaprio in it yet okay so it just the scene just played with the dialogue of them talking about it but that huh. that little moment was great it was hilarious because he kept cutting back to it and it had it had like a it had a weird tension to it because like bells kept chiming every time it like was mentioned yeah. <laughs> it was just really yeah. funny yeah, because it was obviously something that Tarantino knew was like a part of Dalton's joke the whole time. One of those mm -hmm. things about his his you know could have been moments. Um, and the other one was that, I, and I think I didn't think or I didn't remember this from the can cut, but my girlfriend actually said that she saw it in there. So maybe I maybe it was and it and I'd forgotten. But it, but this time around, I noticed it more and I really liked it. Was when um, uh, Sharon Tate's sitting in the cinema watching her film and. She's watching her fight scenes, and it cuts to her training with Bruce, Bruce Lee. Lee. Mm -hmm. Because, um, again, I don't know if my memory just sucks, but when I first saw it in Cannes, I thought, okay, Bruce Lee is in here for that one scene early on where he fights Cliff, and then he's just never in the rest of the movie. 
And I know, of course, they were playing up for publicity purposes. They were playing up um, Mike, what, Mike Moe's. Mike Mo. yeah. They were playing him up as like, oh, he's Bruce Lee. And he, he did a great job. But I, I found it so weird that they were like playing him up so much that I'm like, oh, he had one scene. But then I think, again, I don't know if this is me not remembering it correctly, but seeing it now, there was that one. And then there's also a bit at the end where Bruce Lee comes out at the end. Him with and Jay. Their, him and Jay yeah. Sabering, yeah. Yeah, so there were all these little moments where I was like, oh, this is actually cool. Like, Bruce Lee does have a presence beyond just that one scene. And I thought that was a little bit that he had added as well that I thought enhanced it because it, like, it brought this camaraderie amongst everyone in Hollywood together. And I also felt like the, the, the other random thought that I was thinking of the second time watching it was there's almost this Dunkirk nature where, like, he introduces everyone early on. You follow bits and pieces of them just cutting back and forth, and eventually it all comes together at the very end, where he's, you know, after all of that two hours of time, do they finally all come together in one moment? Yeah, uh, it's like it's like an Altman movie in that respect, too. Yeah. Something like, like shortcuts. Yeah, yeah. Big, big sprawling L.A. movies go. I, I hear what you're saying, for sure. And I, um, I, that's interesting to hear as far as what's possibly new or different. I mean, I think the, the Bruce Lee thing... Definitely, yeah. Yeah, okay. The Bruce Lee thing, it's like, regardless of whether new scenes or not, or I, I it's nice that... Yes, him being a presence just helps it all kind of connect, kind of connect yeah. more yeah. as far as exactly. why we're why we're seeing these specific people. Constantly. Exactly. My feeling is like it's not my favorite Tarantino. I wouldn't rank it low. I'd probably put it in the middle of my list right now. But I also still enjoyed it more a second time. Um, and I'm glad more people are seeing it and having something to say about it because, of course, it sucks to come out of can and have to wait two months for everyone to talk about it because I can't talk about what happens at the end until this final moment. And and my first theory when I saw it and you know saw what happens at the end was that Tarantino loves Sharon Tate so much that he he wanted to write history and be like, I wish she was still alive and I'm gonna make my alternate history version of that where she is saved and she is fine. And like I mean, because otherwise I was like, why is there this whole scene of her just laughing at herself in a cinema? Like why else would he have this in the middle of the because movie? Because you have to give her something to do. I mean right, you have no, to give well, her a make her a symbol of something in here and then show her not just as like this thing that happened, but as a person in some way. And what better yeah, way to do it than, she, which I mean, the thing is like, she's, she's new. Sharon Tate's new on the scene. That's a big part of it. So like the idea of her, you know, roaming around town with Roland Polanski, it's like, well, what agency does she have? Well, it's a matter of, she goes to the, her theater kind of spur of the moment and decides to like watch herself on screen and have to gauge how the audience is reacting to her. Like, I get that. I get what it's yeah. showing you. This person that's new to the scene, hasn't been in movies very much beforehand, is suddenly, like, having this new... There's a new level of appreciation for her, and she's kind of observing that and getting into it and what have you. And with the looming threat of it's all going to be taken away. Like, that's all going to stop yeah. at some point. So, right. some, you know, a bunch of hippies are going to come and murder her. And but by like, the end... Well, but by the end, when she does get saved, I thought back to that scene. I thought, well, he's literally showing us the real Sharon Tate in the footage of the movie. She's watching as the uh, the performance of Sharon Tate in Tarantino's movie. And it's almost this ultimate way of him in a meta way of being like, I love Sharon Tate for the brief amount of movie she was in. Unfortunately, she was killed. But here's my way of like wanting in a Tarantino fantasy way to, to still have her around because he loved her or he admired her that much. And I thought that was cool it didn't it didn't really like blow me away in any way i was like all right cool. i'll just i mean they, they are it is them imposed into the movie like is that the real sharon tate footage like it is her face on like the same way they did the great escape stuff i was like, pretty sure that movie. was the real sharon tate it didn't look anything it, yeah. like like margot robbie to me 
And I was in trying the, to see the, through makeup, but it just it struck me the, as the real yeah. footage. In the Wrecking Crew, I'm pretty sure that's just <laughs> real footage. Now this is going to be the investigation. Whoever <laughs> sees it next, like. Mm, okay. But uh, on this on this topic, I'm. Man, I hate to say this. <laughs> I um, because I loved I loved Margot Robbie's portrayal of her, and and um, you know, admittedly, I haven't done a lot of research on. Sharon Tate as an actress outside of when I was trying to figure out if the main girl in Mad Men was going to be Sharon Tate, which was the thing people were talking about back when. Uh, the the whole presence of her storyline felt very unnecessary for me because of how the whole movie shook out. Like, it, you know, you could have literally had Roman Polanski be the highlight as he was for because everyone everyone would take that well well i know look but... at this movie with that great guy roman polanski <laughs> roaming around the town but not as a good guy and not following him just the existence of the neighbor right the neighbors are roman polanski who's this big director that our main character wants to work with and um everybody thinks the world of him right now and this actress girlfriend or wife he was girlfriend right they were they weren't married, right? No, they were they were they were. Okay. Oh, sorry, yeah, married. Well, My bad. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this actress wife, who hmm, I haven't heard of, but I heard she's in movies, and I feel like if you really wanted to capture the the way things were going then, and not do the revisionist history until the end, would be to say like to have the neighbor, to have Leonardo DiCaprio's character treating her the way she was being treated at the time, which and have that be our perspective because it felt to me like the whole point of the movie was to follow his perspective and Brad Pitt's perspective but it gave us these extra asides of it's her. a B plot it is a B plot and I and I I, I accepted that eventually but I, I also feel like by by doing it 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 sort of de it took me out of the story I wanted to get back into and I was trying to get invested in and every time I would get invested in it, I would enjoy my time with Sharon Tate but I would be wondering why since it's pretty much being worn on its shoulder that this is going to be the story of that Cielo Drive murder like why do I need to see this and I, I, I think I accept on a on a sort of outside scale that Tarantino really wanted to honor her more than just be authentic to the way Hollywood was treating her and you know I, I think that that's great I think it's cool that he did that that he showed us her living embodiment of, of loving this newfound fame being a, a buoyant spirit and being somebody whose life should not have been taken away because I think on the counterpoint of what I'm saying is if she was just a mysterious person who also lived in that house we wouldn't have felt like we missed out on anything, right? Been like, oh, yeah, it, it, take, it takes away a sense of dread if there's no presence of this person that presumably will be murdered because you don't know it won't happen yet. Right, and and so I'm very torn by that. I feel like if you hadn't included her at all in the movie, it would have made perfect sense, and it would have allowed us to stay within these characters. And I'm not a runtime guy, don't, don't, so don't take this literal. The movie would have been 20, 30 minutes shorter maybe. You know, I, I think those are all things that may have allowed this film to be more uh, universally enjoyable for people. But I, I, I think that that's Tarantino saying, like, I know that people want us, this movie to be two hours and two hours flat and have very focused only the main character story. And that's it. 
but I'm making this movie for a purpose, and these things belong in the movie, and I, I get that, and I appreciate that, but I just wanted to sort of vo vocalize a, a way I was feeling when it was all done, and I thought, well, that was cool, but but did we need it? I mean, if you think the backlash against Tarantino's portrayal of Sharon Tate in this movie is bad now, th think of how much it would be if it was like, why is this person not here? <laughs> why, why does she have one scene? I mean, everyone would just be railing against him for how he's chosen to portray the, the one main female character in this movie. Um, but as far as just have, you know, having her versus not having her, I mean, again, it is a B-plot, but also the character is developed in the way he chooses to do it, as opposed to just treating it as this, you know, this thing that's out there that may or may not, you know, have some kind of, yeah, or mur mur murder, yeah, I mean, just bowling over it. I mean, we already talked about, Alex, you already talked about how, like, the lack of Manson in this movie is great. Well, it's like, yeah, why not emphasize the potential, quote-unquote, victims as opposed to the horrible people that did something to them? Exactly. I think that's that's the stronger <laughs> choice in my yeah. eyes as far as what, what thing we want to show here. And especially because, yes, it's a, it is a fantasy. It is a fantasized version of what Tarantino wishes could have happened to Hollywood. And <laughs> the looming level of threat just adds to the drama of the film by having her be a presence, knowing that something bad is going to happen involving her in some way not having her would reduce that. So there'd be no real dramatic tension here. If people, if you're, if you're already, you know, talking about the nature of the story being somewhat unfocused or what have you, and it just kind of drags along following these two guys, imagine what that would be without any sign of sense of drama going on because there's, it's leading to essentially nothing because you've gotten rid of the one character where you know something's going to happen. I mean, it might be two hours, but you're also just sitting there being like, why are we just following these guys? There's no one else in this movie and everybody that shows up only has one scene. What's the point of this? Like, yeah, That makes sense. Um, I do wish at the very end of the movie, he had, uh, um, like oh, a three-minute montage narrated by Ray Liotta <laughs> of, like, all these movies that we love and cherish from Please. the 70s and 80s or whatever, and basically re remade her entire what-if career and had, <laughs> what's his, and had Leonardo DiCaprio's character and, like, just remake <laughs> the history of Hollywood with these two okay. actors in it. That would have been fun, but maybe also too weird. That's not a Tarantino thing, but I totally would have enjoyed that. <laughs> not Kurt Russell? Really? Oh, was wait, who was the voiceover? Kurt Russell. I Which know, I the, thought the guy the, who did the voiceover was Ray Liotta for some reason in my mind. Oh, it's Kurt oh, Russell. Kurt memory. <laughs> which, which, by the way, Aaron, do you know, like, I saw someone on Twitter ask this, like, why Kurt Russell? Because, well, one, he already had him in the movie. Um, I, I don't know. Like, Sam Jackson's no... making 14 movies this year. Maybe that's why. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to tell someone, you. Because someone, someone brought it up. They were like, has anyone asked Tarantino in an interview about whether he, or not he really is um, uh, Stuntman Mike? Mike? Yeah. And then the follow-up question was, and also, why the hell is he the narrator? <laughs> And I was like, I that's, mean, a, that's a fair question. Like, like, well, why, mean, why, is Terrence, at all? why is why is why is Jackson the narrator in Inglorious Bastards? I mean, what do these things matter? I mean, he's just he's making stylistic choices, and he's. I mean, Look, why is he I the narrator in Hateful Eight? Like, it, it would it, it would have made more sense if Kurt Russell wasn't in the film at all. But the fact that he has a character in the film that is a minor character, like it's a, like it makes me think: Why are we watching it from stuntman Mike's perspective? Like, what? It's not what stuntman Mike. To His do? name's Randy. He's a what stunt coordinator. Stuntman like, and he, Randy's stuntman and, he, and he's married Randy's to Zoe. He's married to Zoe Bell. Right, <laughs> but, he, but that has nothing to do with the rest of the film. So, like, why is he narrating it? But that's an because they both have because they 
Because they both have a connection to do, to Cliff and Rick. I mean, he's just someone that happens to be involved in some way. Yeah, but essentially you're saying the, and this is actually a fair point, is that the, the creative choice of who narrates can be anyone who has, exactly. like... Why does Morgan Freeman narrate a bunch of stuff? Who cares? He's just a good he narrator. Because like, no, he has a great voice. <laughs> yeah, I will, say, I will say this is a weird argument to have, <laughs> um, but it, it makes sense in the context of this movie because Kurt Russell plays a character. It, yeah. it, it doesn't I mean, like who cares who's the voiceover should just be a guy with a cool voice but it's weird that kurt russell also played a character in the movie why do i why do i need nick carraway it's all about great gatsby i mean that guy's boring why do i need to focus on him so much like why is he narrating the story but there's a but there's a narrative reason for that the same thing with like amadeus there's a narrative reason it's from the the uh the other guys yeah, but i mean I'm, I'm i'm half kidding and those movies are from a perspective <laughs> but this movie just has a voiceover and he could have chosen anybody and he chosen to choose somebody that's in the movie in some capacity i mean it if doesn't I was, if i was a real film critic this would have been whole point lost but to, to, you are a real film critic for one thing. I know. You for showing.net. You write reviews and you went to Cannes, so shut I'm the joking. fuck up right there. But also, like, <laughs> You're as much a film critic as any human I'm, being I'm, could I'm, be. Yeah, I'm mocking other critics' lips of sick. <laughs> I mean, as far as, stunt, I mean, connected to Stuntman, it's like, guys, people can just, really you can just have people in your movie. Like, not everyone has to be related to somebody. Like, it's, <laughs> it's just, but he's making you live is, there, is anyone going back to 1969 and being like, is Lee Van Cleef related to the 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 the, the good guy in uh, for a few dollars more? Who cares? He's just casting the same guys again. What does it matter? Well, did anybody notice Antonio Margariti was one of the directors of the one of the spaghetti westerns? Yes, I was. I laughed out loud at that, and my wife. There was, was an like, actor. What? <laughs> one of the one of the movies had an actor whose last name was Richie, which made me think of Michael Rappaport as Dick Richie in True Romance, which is oh, written by with I would Tarantino. Love if that was the case too. I mean, his name, his last name is Rich. I mean, it, it's not there for no reason. Put it that way. It was one of the fake movies. So, yeah, uh, I loved that Mar Mar Margarita reference. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Well, I think the only other thing that we haven't really discussed, although I'd prefer not to anyway, is, I'll just bring it up. <laughs> is is the whole violence against women debates going on? And we, I, Alex, we briefly chatted about this. I mean, it's it's interesting to me that people are vocalizing their frustrations with this. First of all, because this is the ninth Tarantino movie. Um, so where you been? But also because it's like, for to me, the comparison is, well, if all of the 9-11 terrorists were women and we made a revisionist movie where we beat the shit out of them, would that bother you? Um, I mean, is this just selective um, outrage because the incident itself didn't merit the violence that we saw on screen? What What do you think is going on? Like, or is it yeah. just mayhem? Is this just the problem with humanity today? Well, there, I mean, there's a react there's a reactionary audience on specifically film Twitter these days where it's like I could care here or there about what you know a small percentage of the world has to think about something when I can just have my own opinion and be smart enough to know what the director's choosing to do. And like you said, it's the ninth Tarantino film where a good chunk of his films have had, you know, major female leads in his roles, strong female lead characters. You have iconic characters like The Bride, obviously, and Jackie Brown, a movie that Alex hasn't seen, obviously. Um, but I mean, aside from that, the violence against women in this movie, which women are getting violence against? Are they the I, ones that were actually I, there in 1969 yeah, exactly. at Sharon Tate's house? I'm like, that's exactly, it was three it, women, one it, who ran away, and then Tex. It's like, that's I exactly mean, what happened in real if, life. If it, if it was anyone else, he would have done the exact same thing to them. So I don't exactly. really see what the argument's supposed to be here. I don't get it, yeah. I, 
I didn't even read some of these I, pieces. I'm, I'm, I'm not like, against the so idea obvious. of like I'm not I'm not against the idea of a level of misogyny prevailing in the industry in some form. But at the same yeah. time, it's like yeah. you have to pick and choose battles, and this doesn't seem like one of them that feels exactly. like it's worth it. Exactly. No, I agree. I agree. This. To, Mike, to, to jump off of this, one of the things I actually wanted to bring up, um, I, and I wanted to read it really quickly, is that uh, there's a lot of interesting theories, of course, that we've talked about about what it means and what Tarantino's trying to say and all this. Um, I found one on Twitter from this guy named Travis Woods, and he wrote this, like, you know, 10-tweet thing that I'll, I'll read real quickly. That it was his, like, connection to the movie that I was completely amazed by because I hadn't heard no one else had this feeling and the way it connected with him. And he said, so I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and it fucked me up on levels I was not aware that I had. And I'm really struggling and emotional in my response to it. And so he goes on to say, for the last two years I've been grappling with and mostly losing out to an overwhelming despair at my feelings of uselessness and how time and talent I've squandered by doing nothing. I feel like I have one thing to do well, which is writing and I have done nothing with it. And from that has sprung an overwhelming need to feel useful to feel like my being here isn't just an accretion of days that blur together, but it's worth something. Uh, and so he goes on and he says, um, like, uh, I sit at my joyless day job selling chunks of my life away and, you know, I'm not doing anything with it. So he says, uh, so today I watched a movie about two men who, have a each, who each have a particular skill set, skill sets that they have been abused and neglected. At one point, a child actor tells DiCaprio's Rick Dalton that the goal of any actor is to achieve 100% effectiveness which is impossible, but the goal is to try, to do your best. She asks him what he's reading, and he tells her it's a Western about a cowboy, and we talked about this already. Uh, and then Dalton takes, breaks down into tears, and he says, so did I. And without going too deep into spoiler territory, he says there's a moment in which these two fuck-up losers are able to use their unique skills to do one good thing, to matter and rediscover a usefulness, to be driven to attempt 100%. And watching this to him was like a spiritual vivisection, he says. Um, and he, he goes on to say he doesn't, he's so emotionally drained in his life right now that he, he doesn't laugh anymore. He can't cry anymore. But after this film, I bawled like a baby, <laughs> parked in my car in the parking structure, watching the palm trees of Hollywood sway in the wind. Um, and he says, I so desperately hope that it isn't too late for me, that I can use whatever limited skills I have to do something useful, to matter, if just for one moment. I want that to be so much, it's all I think about, and the only thing that gets me out of bed. And Once Upon a Time captures that feeling in all its insecurity and hypocritical privilege and death wish self-loathing, but also its innate humanity and sadness and beauty, and it tore me apart in a way that I probably needed. Uh, and, and the moment, and in its aftermath, in which characters are able to finally use their gifts in a meaningful way, he says, however over the, however over the top and cinematic it may have been, it was such a metaphor for what we also desperately want. Uh, to take from our own heads what we know is special or unique about us and to finally use it for something, to bring it into the world, to be useful, even if it only leads to neighborly conversation. That's something special. And I was like, that's a crazy interpretation of this movie. And I totally love it that this guy had that kind of emotional response about like uselessness, which is an aspect of Rick and Cliff's characters. But I mean, that's what I'm talking about when it comes yeah. to kind of aging out of the system. Yeah, of course. And, and it's, I mean, it's like, it's like a front perspective of what the movie is and what these guys are going through. But to, to hear him put, like explain it that way and how he was totally affected by that and how to, to, to put it in that perspective of like, oh, so these guys finally got to use this skill they have to defeat, quote unquote, evil to save, in Tarantino's mind, 
a beautiful part of Hollywood is, is such a such a cool interpretation. This is what I this is actually to me what I love about the film community when it actually works well is that mm -hmm. you can read someone's interpretation like this and be like, that's really beautiful and not something that any of us had, but to hear someone explain it in that way. And even if I didn't love the same the movie as much as he did, that's just that's so cool. And I had to mention this because I, I found it and I was like, this is great. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like he has a lot to go over with his therapist someday. But I mean, yeah, it, it's a it's a nice <laughs> commentary on what he was going through here. I mean, that's the thing about this movie, these movies, is that now it makes me really excited to see it again. Even though I, I know exactly all the moments and scenes in which he's referencing and what made him feel that way. And I, I, I love the movies that are layered enough to give you multiple watches and completely different experiences, you know? And I think there are people out there who would read that and say, fucking bullshit. You're reading <laughs> way too far into this. And I, and I think, no, absolutely not. That's a great assessment of this movie. It just takes, it takes a very specific person to be able to see all that in this movie, but it's totally there. Explaining it the way he wrote it is beautiful. And I, I love it. I mean, that's a, the flamethrower moment was so fun and so enjoyable. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a total crowd pleaser. Everybody on their feet, screaming with joy watching that moment. and Screaming with joy watching them burn someone to a crisp. Yes, I absolutely. Did. I mean, it was so much fun. <laughs> I know, and it's funny I know. because, you know, earlier in the film when he used – when they cut to the Nazi scene, it's sort of like – I'll bet you nobody watched that and wasn't thinking any version of – why are you you just did inglorious bastards what are you doing uh i mean he <laughs> doesn't cheat because it shows it again when booth goes into the, the 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 tool shed to get his uh yeah to get his stuff he, yeah. you see you see a shot of the flamethrower sitting yep. there at the bottom like he, he knows Absolutely. what he's doing i mean <laughs> it's, planted. It, it's it's gonna be enjoyable to see that put together um once again to know that like all those scenes with the flamethrower were not just like goofy asides they were actual little east little eggs that were gonna come up to this moment and in that that is such a great per, a great perspective on the movie and you know it fits not just for the flamethrower moment but for the introduction to his neighbors knowing who he was all the all along and i mean it's it's great you know he, he puts his parking spot has a giant picture of himself that's how desperate he was to be noticed by his neighbors but it didn't work he had to kill a manson family person to do it <laughs> He cried if he was, he cried if, you know, it's also a little bit of a comment on Hollywood where like everyone just lives, lives next to each other. No one says anything. He could have just rang the doorbell. <laughs> he certainly could. Like, hey, I'm Rick Dalton. <laughs> but it's, uh, it, you know. But he also had no confidence in himself. You know, he thought, no, that's, if yeah, I that's, were that's to that, introduce yeah. myself to Roman Polanski and he says, well, what are you working on? I'd have to say, oh, I'm going to just guest star on a show where I get killed. <laughs> <laughs> I not if uh, not if Marvin Schwarz has anything to do with it. That's for sure. Yeah, that's the kind of. I hope I I know he's gonna start wrapping up his career, but well, both of them are. But I I would I would love to just see more of that, more of Pacino as that guy. I just want Schwarz. more Pacino in general, and I know we're gonna get some more later this year. But I just uh, I miss I miss Pacino. He's like he's like the um the Tom Cruise character in. Uh... Uh, Tropic Thunder? Yeah, who like was totally ridiculous and absurd, but also everyone wanted like a whole spin off series of just him. 
Like the the ridiculous Hollywood exec. I did. I, I mean, Mike, you touched upon it, but the whole time with Al Pacino, I was like, is there going to be something more with him here? Like, I love that introduction where he was talking about the the, the quote unquote film festival he had in his home and like going over that whole thing. And it was just like, that was it. <laughs> but I, but yeah. Oh yeah, I thought uh, there were a couple times during this movie where I maybe overreacted, but I was, I was saying the Al Pacino from Heat, don't waste my motherfucking time. Uh, I was like, what are we doing? Like, let's go, give me the violence and the craziness and the tension, um, because look, oh, I the... can, I can, give me Pacino interrogating people all day. I'm all about that. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yes. laughs> I just, just there was not, there just was not enough tension for me in this movie. The sequence that I love so much at the ranch was full of it, um, and there was a lot of it just before the, the the violence breaks out at the end. But you know, outside of those two scenes, I didn't really get. I didn't feel any tension. I, I didn't. I didn't have enough. Uh, I didn't care necessarily enough about him pulling off that scene for it to be tension. You know, I mean, I I loved other moments of the movie. You know. DiCaprio's breakdown in the trailer is one of those top moments of his career going along with his, him getting in the car in <laughs> in Wolf of Wall Street, just like all his physical ability. It was so funny and so good, and there were moments I love about the movie, but I'm just still stuck on, like, I just wanted it to be more tense. I wanted to be sweating the whole movie. And so, you know, I, I know a lot of other people probably felt that way. But hearing all these different perspectives, that there's all this nuance to what what was being created, is very helpful to go in again and, and yeah, Mike, I want to observe it. I want to get you on in like a week when you've seen it again and be like, did you change uh, better or worse? What is your feeling on it? But it, that's almost like I almost want to start a whole podcast series where like we watch something, we discuss it, and then like three months later we watch it again and we discuss it again, and if we have any different opinions, because well, I, I mean, I think it would change a little. No Country Sometimes. for Old Men is the prime example of a movie I absolutely fucking hated the first time I saw it and abs- yeah, and, and have, have learned to love. Right, right, right. I think everyone hated it because the end, right? Because the end was such a, like, cop-out move, but then you're like, no, oh, it's really just a creative choice, and everyone's like, no, I wanted to see it, but still. I mean, beyond, beyond being very true to Cormac McCarthy's text, I mean, it, it, it does make a choice for sure, but yeah, yeah. I, I was... I was fully worn in with it. I mean, when you when you get me to a point where Josh Brolin is, you know, executed off screen, I'm not really surprised that the movie ends on the way it does at that point. So. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I don't know. I just, last last I, last question here. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, do we buy into Tarantino's comments about this possibly being his last movie? Does no, anybody he's got- buy that? I just think he just made a movie and he's tired and he's like, yeah, I don't need to talk about my next movie right now. I'm just happy working on this one and then I'll take a break for a bit before I move on to the next thing. Mike, if you're if you're asking that, will he end at 10? I don't think so. I think he I think he loves to say that. And I think he I understand where he comes from, because there's a lot of filmmakers like, uh, dare I say, Francis Ford Coppola, who really suck when they make a film nowadays, even though. He is Coppola, and he made a lot of great classics in the day. What, you didn't and like Tetra? doesn't want to do that. I like Tetra quite a bit. I didn't like the the vamp, what the fuck, the, the live edited yeah, thing that he did. Yeah, um, yeah, It also starts with a T. <laughs> I'm trying to think of it. Yeah. Well, Val Kilmer one. Nonetheless, I think Tarantino's like coming from that perspective of like he doesn't want to make a stinker, and he knows that if he keeps doing it too long, he will. But I also think that 
you know, he may make a number 10 and it will be a big thing and, there will, you know, there'll be talk about it. But I guarantee you he will make another one at some point in time. Whether Because right now he's talking about his Star Trek one, which I hope to God happens. And then he's also talking about Kill Bill 3, which both of these are, like, complete rumors. And I mean, who knows, put, but, like... Put Kill Bill 3 in the Vega Brothers vault of things he'll talk about but never actually do. Right, I mean, but I'm I, saying, like... But but in this current climate of in this Hollywood climate where everything that you thought would never get made is finally being made, it wouldn't surprise me. But nonetheless, like that's two more right there that he could clearly make if he was given the right you know opportunity. So yeah, and I, he's the kind of talker where he would make yeah. them also not count. Where it's like, well, Kill Bill Volume Three is actually just part of one again. So right. you know, it doesn't really count. That's really one film. And then you know, Star Trek that's that's not really my film. That was the franchise came into it, whatever. And I mean, a real film is coming now. Like he'll, you know, he can motor him up his way past, you know, excuses for why that wasn't his actual tenth film or what have you. So yeah. no, I don't. Uh, Mike, I was gonna say I sent this quote to you from the GQ article where he says something about like he wants to win the screenwriting Oscar so many times they call it the Quentin, and then like. There was an there was an aside in the interview and it's great and I'm so glad they kept it in there where it says like and then Quentin's girlfriend came out of the around the corner in the house and said Quentin that's crazy that's the craziest thing you've ever said and I just love that they included that because it's like clearly he says crazy ass things and clearly his girlfriend comes out and grounds him and is like this is nonsense that you're saying but that's that's Tarantino for you he just says these things <laughs> and I, and of course like I said I understand where he he wants to end at some point. But I, I don't think we can take it seriously that, like, number 10 is going to be it, and that will be it forever. Even if it takes him another 20 years, I guarantee you he'll make another one. I mean, to add to that, as far as his thoughts on directors not delivering this, you know, better stuff, like, that's that's patently not true. I mean, just, you can name, yeah, you can name Coppola, but remember Coppola, you also have a Martin Scorsese or a Spielberg who are doing some of the most interesting films of their careers at this point. I mean, it, look, <laughs> I agree, but I don't know if Tarantino does because a lot of a lot of filmmakers start. Yeah, he's Tarantino is also a huge Woody Allen fan, and he makes a movie every year for the past forty years. So I mean, he's <laughs> but are Woody Allen's films any good anymore? No. He won an he won an Oscar not too long ago. He has more Oscars that than Tarantino. Mean anything that doesn't mean anything. You know that. I know, it does, but yeah, I mean, you just said, you know, call it the Quintons. Like, Tar Woody Allen has more options than Quentin Tarantino does for writing. I think right, there's something to be said. Uh, there's a very different, <laughs> you're talking about very different approaches to filmmaking. I mean, you can't know, compare I, prolific yeah, filmmakers I, to Tarantino because, like, I mean, he just, he he's only done nine. And I feel like if he, if, if he did one a year, probably would make a ton of really good movies and some bad ones and he because he just loves the work he loves the process but it's it's very obvious that he's like uh, he's very terrified of becoming obsolete and this was the first movie i i think where he started to show it a bit where he's like he i think he put a little bit of himself into those scenes where dicaprio's character was getting nervous about disappearing from hollywood well, he put a lot I mean, that's my argument. He's putting a lot of himself into this, and I'm arguing against myself, honestly, as far as what he's do, what he wants to do, because I I agree as far as the kinds of films he's making are, yes, a lot different than Woody Allen puts together a screenplay over a weekend and you know films it with some big stars and you know whatever city he's chosen. Here, yes, he's make Tarantino makes films that involve a lot of people, a lot of different kinds of preparation, things that are just frankly more complicated, let alone hard to get funded. I mean, he's you know an Allen film, among other examples. I'm just using that one because it's very easy. But those movies don't cost very much. His Amazon films actually did cost a lot, but that's a different story. But Tarantino film, I mean, he needed $100 million to make this movie for Sony, right? Like, he needed, he needed, he needed a budget. He can't, he can't just, like, slap something together. He's not making Reservoir Dogs where he takes a, you know, a, a funeral takes, parlor. And... It takes six or seven years to get that many blood squibs together. 
yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it, yes, I, I looking at this and looking at the kind of story he's telling and looking at just him in general, like he what he just got married. He wants to have kids like he wants to settle down. I can see why he Thank wants you. to retire. Like, I, I get it. I get why he's, you know, less into how many movies can I make right now? And what can I do more and more along the lines of I made a lot of good movies. People seem to like me. Why not stop while I'm ahead? I get it. I get where that's coming from. Yeah, he's he's pulling a Rick Dalton. <laughs> I, I I'm also very curious to see how much he cares about the public desire. I think there's a strong desire in the public for that Kill Bill three movie and for it to be the comeuppance of the first murder, the daughter. I mean, that's like he built it already. He put that piece there. Every time I watch Kill Bill, I get excited about the prospect of that movie. Right of just some newcomer playing that role and having to reach her and it's called kill kiddo or kill beatrix or something and like that it's it's so good in my head that i'm also worried about him making it for my own reasons i just like that's why he's never going to do it he knows there's a desire for it he's not dumb he knows people are like yeah that'd be a neat thing to see but he's not gonna he's not gonna make that movie for one he's not gonna have a movie where he murders uma thurman (laughs) like it's not that's just not gonna happen like whatever random rumor of the week because tarantino said something because it's not like he doesn't talk like i find it bullshit like he's not making that movie Aaron, when he makes Kill Me Three, we're gonna we're gonna get you on the podcast, and we're gonna yeah, pull, sure, hold yeah. you get me on, yeah, serve me, send me, send me crow from Germany, I will eat it. I'd like Good. to put into it the ap- I'd like to put into the atmosphere my own um, fan fiction movie for him to make. I know he did Inglorious Bastards and it's got Nazis and all that, but I really want to see him do a Holocaust revisionist thing where the people in Holocaust camp like just bl- murder all of the Nazis in just the most horrendous way possible. That's my... I, mean, I think he, I, I, like you said, he did Inglorious Bastards where he got a bunch of Jewish soldiers together to take care of business. I know he did. I know he did, but... but uh, I, I, another, another movie, That's what I'm saying. Uh, yes, he did. Another movie... I, I, there's What I love about him is he's selective enough that he allows me time to just create a Tarantino movie in my head. And then he just does something I had no idea he was going to do. Like this. Like you told me he was going to make a movie that takes place all in 1969. This would have been the last thing I would have thought he'd do. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's kind of cool. It's the real Sharon Tate. I've been looking around to find this. Yes, it's real. The real footage. Ah! I was just because he did the great escape thing. I'm like, is that this really clever? Like he's just really doing some special effects work. But here? the, like, the great escape thing was it was a joke because you know he. Was it's a joke, but I mean, I just watched but, but, Lion but, King. I mean, those aren't lions, but they look pretty real. No, I don't but know what's going it's on these days. <laughs> character, it's okay if it be. But when you're honoring a real dead person, I think that's your opportunity to show the real person. And that's probably yeah, and was, where it came from. he was the movie. You know, he was like showing the actual Wrecking Crew movie, which I thought was cool. I, I get it. When I look at it, I was like, yeah, that makes more sense. Uh, it is. I just find it super weird because it's Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate watching the real Sharon Tate, you know, like a little bit too meta there, but it works. Anyway, <laughs> um, I guess on that note, we should wrap it up. Uh, I mean, I would love to keep talking about this. I would love to keep talking about theories of all the Tarantino movies because now that we've had this conversation, I'm like, man, I want to go back and do this for Bastards and Hateful Eight and everything else. But uh, I think that's uh, for I think one of your day. colleagues has that taken care of. <laughs> Probably. What's your uh, recording? There's a podcast. What's it called? About... Are you talking about the, the Nicholson one? Yeah. 
Amy Nicholson. We mentioned it at the begin the beginning. Uh, yeah, Amy Nicholson. She she's starting this new podcast, but I don't think they're talking about Tarantino's films. I think they're talking about other things than, besides it. Um, but it's called Quentin Tarantino's feature presentation. Uh, and she says the first episode, Quentin and I start talking about the surrealistic 1967 thriller Point Blank and wind up talking about Reservoir Dogs and his own fear that he might not be a good director. She just started a new podcast series with Quentin Tarantino. I guess she's not a chucklehead. No, she's not a chucklehead. She's a very unchucklehead. We're the chuckleheads. We are. Thank you for listening to our chucklehead podcast. He's never going (laughs) to join our chucklehead podcast. Maybe one day, maybe one day. Well, um, Aaron, thank you for joining us. And, sure. Uh, Happy to be here. Whereas, as always, where can people find you? Where can they listen to your show? Uh, yeah, if you want to hear me talk more about movies, I have a, co- a show I co-host with my friend Abe. It's called Out Now with Aaron and Abe. Alex has been on there a couple times, and I'd be happy to get Mike on there at some point, too. That'd be great. Um, but, yeah, we talk about the weekly movie releases, and we also do a commentary every month. It's a lot of fun. And lots of games. They do all kinds of cool stuff. Like yeah, we, we, yeah, we, uh, we have a whole – it's a whole variety hour with us. Um, variety yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Got that going. I write movie reviews over at welibeentertainment.com. I have a wonderful Godzilla article at thefirstshowing.net. So, you know, you can find me all over. I'm on, I'm on Twitter at Aaron's PS4. Cool. Well, um, thank you for listening, and hopefully we'll have a new episode sooner than later this next time. Well, yeah, I want to do Hobbs and Shaw. Ah. I, wanna, I want you to just – I'm going to love that movie so much, and I just want you to hate it, and I just want to argue with I you. I am too. <laughs> okay, Mike. I can't wait. Up. Then that that's a great teaser for the next episode. Like, tune in to see who hates what and if we get into it on our next. I am so I'm just rooting so hard for that movie. I want it to be good. I want everybody to like it. I just like it's the first movie of the year that I really like. I'm gonna be very upset if it's not amazing. I'm just even even this one, even Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I was like, you know what? It it doesn't have to be perfect because I already have nine. Or eight movies that I but this I could watch. this spinoff of the eight movies in Fast and Furious series it, it better be deliver good. it has there's to no, there's no reason it shouldn't deliver <laughs> I, I just want it to be so good I want it to be the dumbest most fun enjoyable summer flick I've ever seen you know what Mike I want that too <laughs> so hopefully that's what we get all right hopefully what we get all right well thanks for joining us Aaron. Yeah, no, happy to happy to be here. Thanks for making it work time wise and everything. I uh, I wanted to talk about this movie, and I just like talking with you guys, so I thought it would be fun. I just wanted to know why Daniel Craig isn't playing some kind of uh, um, Steve McQueen biopic yet. Oh, that's been. I mean, people have certainly talked about that for years. I never <laughs> realized I, how much he looked. I never. Like Never thought about it until I saw. I, I, I was like this, especially after watching Damian Lewis not look like Steve McQueen. I'm like, why are we not have Daniel Craig playing Steve McQueen yet? <laughs> yeah. He was he was enough, not yeah. convincing, but, was, but I, enough. I was reading uh, an interesting take that that Steve McQueen is probably who Dalton is based on. That their careers. I thought it was, are, I thought it was Eastwood. Somebody. It's a number of people. Yeah, I'm it's sure it's an amalgamation. I mean, of a Eastwood lot of similar it, it, stories. Eastwood's the most directly, indirectly, just because they both did spaghetti westerns. But it's not like Eastwood wasn't struggling. He just he right. did the thing. He went right. that way. It worked but out. Eastwood didn't have like a TV career. Where he was stuck on a TV show. He wasn't stuck. He, he certainly did TV. He just moved up to doing the Italian westerns and then moved on from there and started directing early on. Uh, I mean, it's yeah. Rick is like a mix of people. Like, like Steve McQueen's a little bit in there. Burt Reynolds is a huge one, especially Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham, his 
his his stunt coordinator slash best friend. I mean, you can see right there. That's how that works. I mean, so it's. I mean, yeah, there, there are amalgams for a lot of characters, sure. Well, cool. All right. I better go walk my dogs. It's been a while. All right. All right. That's my I better get some sleep, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly where I'm going. Oh, yeah. What time All is right. it? What time is it? 2 a.m. now, thank 2 you. 2 a.m., yeah. Gotta get my butt to bed. Well, thank you, guys. Have a you. good Have a good day over there. <laughs> have a good tomorrow. Thanks, Thanks Mike.